0: The sales enablement content is kind of my favorite content to create because it is largely case studies. And working on case studies means you're really connecting with your customers' needs and their pain points, understanding how your company provides that solution, and then finding a way to write this story in a compelling and, of course, truthful way. And then you're enabling your sales team to do the job that they're supposed to do really well. That's why I think it's super important to figure out the shorter term KPIs so that you know that you're meeting at least your business goals while you're sort of waiting for the SEO magic to to happen.
1: Welcome to Top of Mind, a show where we speak with top marketers, creators, and leaders who are shaping the culture around us. I'm Stuart Hillhouse, and I believe that through great marketing, you can earn the privilege of occupying a tiny sliver of your customer's already overflowing brain. Join me today as we learn what it takes to become top of mind. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Content does not mean just writing blog posts for the Google algorithm. Blog writing is one of the many growth levers that content marketers can pull to move the needle in the right direction, so long as it also aligns with the bigger marketing strategy. All right, so if content is not just blog writing, then what the heck is a content marketing strategy? My guest today is going to help us to answer that question and share how content can actually be used to power other business units to achieve a unanimous goal. My guest today is the head of content at ShipBob and is a great friend of mine. I'm pleased to welcome Amanda Natividad. Amanda, welcome to Top of Mind.
0: Yay! I'm so happy to be here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> finally got you on. I've only been internet friends for a year, and now we get to finally do it, record an episode. Fine. So before you got into marketing, you had two previous careers before that, one as a journalist. And then one as a test kitchen cook. And we're going to get into journalism because that ties very nicely into content marketing. But tell me what a day-to-day of a test kitchen cook would look like.
0: Yeah. So I worked at the Los Angeles Times test kitchen. And, you know, this was several years ago. So can't speak to what it's like now, but I can very comfortably say that back then, every single recipe published in the LA Times newspaper or published in the LA Times is tested at least twice before it's published every single time. So a lot of the, a lot of the work was really measuring things out, weighing things out, cooking over and over, fully documenting the process. Like the cook times needed to be within a frame of one minute. So like, you know, caramelize the onions for 40, for 40 to 45 minutes or 44 to 45 minutes. Something very exact so that anybody at home can replicate it. So I would say for anybody listening, if you need a foolproof recipe, Definitely go to the LA Times because they've tested it. The other thing that we did in the test kitchen was we we recreated restaurant recipes and we would use the restaurant's actual recipe. So this meant cold calling restaurants and talking to the chef and saying, Hey, you know what? An LA Times reader really loves your shrimp and grits. Can you give us the recipe so we can publish it? And if anyone ever said no, it was only because we couldn't reach them or because they didn't call us back. So yeah, we couldn't reach them. Oh, so people
1: like restaurants were super willing to share.
0: They were. Yeah. And I think a big part of it is because ultimately they know that most people aren't going to do it. Like most Mm -hmm. people aren't going to make it. Mm -hmm. And then the ones who do are either, you know, they don't, they don't live locally, so they can't go to the restaurant. Or they will still go to the restaurant, and and a lot of them saw it as an as an honor to be hmm. to be included in this section. So, well, it's but, good. Yeah.
1: It, wow, that I, I didn't I didn't purposely ask that question to set us up for a content like discussion, but I see a huge parallel there. That a lot of people think that content marketing might be wasteful because you're like giving away all your secrets, or you're like trying to share as much as possible for free, and people are like, "But if we're giving everything away for free, how do we eventually charge for our product?" but i think you just kind of hit on it there that in a lot of cases it's a positive pr move and 90% of the, your readers aren't actually going to take action on the advice you give they're going to mm-hmm. say oh wow i love how that company is thinking about the problem i'm going to work with them
0: totally totally and 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 you know like a like a restaurant and like a company you know each we'll just say each entity maybe They have their own style, their own way of doing things, their own recipe, really. And so when people do, when, you know, patrons or customers experience that, they get to experience your company's sort of philosophy or approach to work. So they respect you more. Like, I don't think... Like there was, you know, I don't think anyone cooking these LA times recipes at home is going to be thinking, Oh, let me see how I can steal all these recipes and start my own restaurant. I mean, the barriers to opening up a restaurant are so high that I think that, that likelihood is so low. And then anybody who wants to put in the time, effort, and money into opening their own restaurant, they're probably not going to be some scammy person who wants to steal other people's recipes. Like chances yeah. are they have their own vision.
1: Yeah. I love that. That's super cool. And and so at the end of it, you got to taste the recipes, did you? Or did they all, or they are just for photo use?
0: No, we got, we got to eat them and it was also for photo use. And the photo shoot days were different days. Those were days that we, we cooked the recipe for, for the shoot. And also in the LA times, all the food photos you see are 100% food. Like Mm. they don't add things like you know, I don't know, nail polish to make something extra glossy. It, right. It's all natural food ingredients. So part of the challenge too was making sure the plated dish really does look good enough for the photo. One, one really fun challenge, I think, in, in food photography is effectively shooting a salad. Um, oh. A reason it's really difficult is because in a, in a bowl of greens, it creates a lot of shadows. So if you just take a quick photo of it, it you, you get a lot of dark green and black, and it's kind of hard to see. So it requires a lot of lighting from various angles to make sure you're making sure the green of the vegetables or the green of the leaves really shine.
1: That's that's cool. So there's an opportunity there for anyone who's who thinks that they've got a solution to to lighting a salad. The huge <laughs> huge market.
0: Yeah, there's, there's, someone should make a a ring light for mixed <laughs> green. Salad ring
1: light. <laughs> All right, let's get into some content stuff because that's what that's where you and I have both spent the majority of our our time thinking and writing about and strategizing for the last couple of years. I get con- I get c- confused when we talk about content, even even though we're in the industry because it's such a broad term now. Like it's it's a very mature industry at this point. But like I said in the intro, a lot of people just immediately think about blog posts because that is a very useful channel but some people also consider social media content and some people have youtube channels and some people have newsletters i'd be curious to understand like do you th- like have you thought about how to break that up into more siloed ways of thinking or are you comfortable with this with the overall just like mushy idea of content and then you kind of figure out how to talk about it depending on who you're working with
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's especially relevant to me and my role right now at ShipBob. At ShipBob, you know, we are a tech enabled third party logistics company. So, you know, we're a B2B company. But what's unique about the marketing team that I'm on is that everybody really cares deeply about content and the quality of it. And a lot of people work in content, even if they're not in a content role. Like I have, Various coworkers who are doing specifically TikTok or specifically our weekly webinar or our operator series show. And we kind of just call these by their discrete programs. I'm not sure what the right answer is because I guess it depends on the maturity of your organization or the maturity of the content that you have in place. I mean, Shipbob has been around for like seven years. So, they already have a terrific blog, like it's great SEO. So, for me coming into this content role, that's not the first priority. For me, I'm thinking about, well, what can we do next? So, I sort of, I've been calling it like branded content, but I don't even think that's right either, because I'm thinking about content that elevates us as a brand that moves the broader discussion in e commerce and logistics forward in some way. I don't know. I'm
1: curious so would that be think? sort of like the old, like, I don't know if that's still a relevant term to be using, but like thought leadership, like you're kind of trying to create these like, cause you're in the weeds every day in this industry of logistics and fulfillment, you want to start putting out your ideas so that other people hear it and they're like, oh, I like the way ship Bob is thinking about that problem.
0: Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, it really is thought leadership. And I feel like we've, you know, as a content industry have really belabored that point. <laughs> yeah. But it's true. I mean, it's it's wanting to be leaders in the thinking yeah. <laughs> of e-commerce and logistics. So what, what? I don't know. I mean, what what are your thoughts on on having a new name for content or kind of breaking that out?
1: Yeah, I think, and this is partially because now I'm studying growth marketing tactics in my new role. But the way they describe it in growth marketing is like you have a strategy at the high level and then you have channels in which you execute that strategy. And so when we talk about content channels, we're talking about like the way in which you're reaching an audience. And so for you that would be like TikTok is one channel, webinars is another channel, blog is another channel, newsletter is another channel. And so that way like then you have strategies within each channel. Like you can't just broadly say we're going to ship a piece of content on every channel on every Tuesday afternoon because the strategy of TikTok does not work well with weekly content. That needs to be daily. No one wants, but then for a newsletter, you don't necessarily need to have a newsletter every week. Maybe that could be every month. And so that's where I think about it. It's like overarching strategy, like content strategy at the high level then channel strategy, and then like channel execution. But that becomes very kind of like a lot of words and a lot of like, it's a very visual idea of thinking about it. Like I'm using my hands to talk about it. So those listening probably might be a little lost, but yeah, I don't know. I think there's a word there that we need to like evolve to where we it's like content is good as an industry, maybe idea, but eventually you're going to be hiring. I assume in five years, there will be like, A TikTok department at most consumer brands, the same way there's a Facebook buying department at any company who's hardcore into e commerce, right? So we're going to need to kind of like split every channel up into its own marketing department that I'll kind of report to the content person. And then content in itself is like a, a part of marketing beside revenue, beside life cycle, beside retention and then that kind of falls under another umbrella so it's going to be getting pretty complicated as as marketing starts to go really 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 wide and then people are going to need to be super deep in every single one of those channels
0: yeah i completely agree and i think that's i think that's well put i think we're going to be seeing more and more marketing departments having these discrete functions for these specific channels or mm-hmm. platforms because to your point with like tiktok having a whole tiktok department it totally makes sense because I feel like on the surface, one might think, oh, yeah, I have a video department. But video is very different on TikTok versus YouTube and versus Mm -hmm. whatever you can do on YouTube. Like A YouTube channel can include your podcast where you have snippets, or it can be a more like story-driven format where each video is kind of its standalone episode. And if you're going to do it
1: right, you need to dedicate expertise and time to testing it. That's the other thing that growth marketers kind of live by is we're doing we're testing one channel we're going so hardcore on it for 6 months like we're giving ourselves a timeline we're testing it against a, a control group so that we know that we're actually that what we're doing is leading to better like the result we're looking for and that's something that i think content marketers can uh, like learn from them is that kind of scientific method thinking of like let's only focus on one thing really hardcore for a certain amount of time and get good at the tactics and the execution that the strategy is dictating where to your point like if we have if we're telling someone to film us film YouTubes but also do TikTok they're not going to do either one well nor should they because they, the two of them require vastly different skill sets and daily activities to get to the next level of what you're trying to achieve mm-hmm totally yeah it'll be expensive when you need to have all those channels but that's the other thing is you need to kind of like focus on which ones are going to move the needle like if you're depending on your business model tiktok will not be anything you need to touch neither will youtube but if you are in a in a business model that needs those you need them
0: but i'd be very curious to see one year from now which companies are doing youtube really really well because mm. video production is so expensive it requires the upfront time in recording the video, you need the equipment to record. And it, you know, you could record on your iPhone or whatever, but you still need like lavalier mic. You, you need some level of gear. Uh, you need, you need video editing, whether that's you spending many hours on it or hiring a video editor, depending on the format you're taking. Like maybe you are taking a lot of B-roll footage to help augment your points. You have to pay for the B-roll footage. So each video on YouTube is expensive. And I think it's something that you as an organization or business leader need to decide upfront whether you want to invest in it or not. Like I think you have to just be comfortable with the fact that you're not going to see any ROI on it for several months. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to just... And I, And I mean, it sounds like I'm saying, and I am kind of saying, yeah, you have to throw your money into a black hole for a while. But you have to be comfortable with that in some way in order to realize the gains from that investment.
1: You've written about a few other ways that a content's content, meaning like the output of putting your fingers on a keyboard and typing out a blog or filming a video can actually be used for more tactical and different parts of the company can benefit from content, not just from increased traffic to your website. Um, A few of the examples you gave are like, helping demand generation, helping boost public relations or any type of corporate communications you're putting out there, product marketing, social media, like events. Can you tell me a little bit of what you've uh, understood content to be as like an enabler for other departments of a company?
0: This was really how I worked on content when I worked at Fitbit. So at Fitbit, I I built out the B2B content team. And I started out with this really unique opportunity in which when I joined... Everybody knew what Fitbit was when I joined. When I joined, Fitbit was around for like seven or eight years already. It was a beloved consumer brand and we had a ton of inbound, like meaning a ton of employers who were reaching out to Fitbit to say, hey, we want to run a corporate wellness program for our employees. Do you sell a, do you give us a, do you give a bulk discount and do you sell reporting software? And that was exactly what we did. And so the content need that we had, wasn't it wasn't to drive brand new leads and it wasn't to increase traffic it was to provide education and support to the existing demand the way i saw it was running content as a service and so my content powered demand generation like by way of like white papers and ebooks and interactive you know content it powered pr or corporate comms by way of helping to provide Supporting messaging, like supporting some of the claims that we would say regarding, you know, regarding things like corporate wellness programs help to increase employee retention and employee engagement, the stuff like that. We help support product marketing efforts. Like, I'll, I would, I would kind of bucket product marketing and customer marketing into one sort of ent- sort of one function. But there, you know, we worked on a lot of educational tools, like e- whether it was like how to run a corporate activity challenge and providing some fun documentation for that. We worked with social media and events. Events was a big thing for us because we we did a lot of speaking engagements at other industry conferences. So a lot of what I did was helping, helping to develop these, these presentations or these talking points. And then we also had our own prospect-focused conference where... You know, I mean, as a content person, I saw it as like, cool, this is my white paper come to life (laughs) with (laughs) with all the people that I know and respect in this industry. And it was getting them to say in their way, in their expert way, Hmm. you know, the things that I wanted to talk about with respect to physical activity, wellness, and corporate wellness.
1: Smart. And I think that's, that sounds like a way that you can get those quick wins by making content. While you're waiting for the algorithms to pick it up to if, if your intent is to generate more leads or, or visitors, right? If totally, you're making yeah. sales enablement content, like you can finish that in a week and then hand it to the sales team and the sales team can start sharing that the week after.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's something that, I mean, the the sales enablement content is kind of my favorite content to create because it is largely case studies. And working on case studies means you're really connecting with your customers' needs and their pain points, understanding how your company provides that solution, and then finding a way to write this story in a compelling and, of course, truthful way. And then you're enabling your sales team to do the job that they're supposed to do really well. And then you know, regarding the SEO-focused content, I mean, SEO is a long-term play. It, It takes months to realize true traffic and search ranking benefits. So that's why I think it's super important to figure out the shorter term KPIs so that you know that you're meeting at least your business goals while you're sort of waiting for the SEO magic to to happen.
1: You got to be really close to some SEO magic case studies when you were working um, with Growth Machine. What do some of the best SEO driven businesses understand about writing for search algorithms that like the others just aren't figuring out?
0: I think the best ones understand their niche really, really well. Like they play really well within their niche and they understand how that relates to their customers' pain points. That's where I've seen the best success in SEO driven content because they're creating content for which there is existing demand for that education or awareness and producing a lot of it in a really high quality way. and they are connecting with the customers who are looking for these solutions who are like oh i need this product or i need this service i would also say it's a little bit easier to see the the through line between seo and sales when it's a consumer product because mm-hmm. you know consumer products tend to cost less like a SaaS product aimed at the enterprise is like tens of thousands of dollars and the sales cycle tends to be super long or right? it tends to be several months but Something like a consumer product, where whether it's a, a drink that the case costs, it costs like $30 for the case, or you know, a pair of pants that is like $40 or you know, leggings that are that are more affordable. Those are things that the sales cycle can be a lot shorter, where somebody can see the SEO article and then make the purchase. My favorite example that I, that I love to talk about is. It's one of the case studies at Growth Machine and it's a direct-to-consumer beverage company. And one of the articles that we had created for them was about was about no sugar and alcohol. So, like what what is that like? What are the benefits to that? Does that is that something you even need to care about? And then they happen to create a product that supports that need. So that's a blog post that has generated. Thousands of dollars of revenue each month just from the SEO of that post.
1: Mm, cool. So, kind of like being able to answer questions from like every angle, because that in that case they were just kind of it was an informational post about is it does alcohol have sugar in it? I, I don't know what exactly what the, the hook was, but that's like asking a how question. But you could rewrite that as asking like a what, like how much. Sugar is in alcohol. Yeah. Kind of totally. Like that. You said Bob has some SEO traffic already. What are you thinking about in terms of the content strategy there now that you're stepping into a new role and get to kind of design it from scratch?
0: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really excited. I think, you know, we will definitely be launching a podcast and I'm kind of pressure testing some ideas right now, like what the premise will be. We will have. Well, we will probably have some kind of YouTube show or we already have a lot of great YouTube content, but we might be, you know, we'll consider launching a new show for the channel and then also a newsletter of some sort. So I'll be figuring out whether we launch something on Substack or do something that enables a little more automation like ConvertKit. But I'm really excited to figure it out because I think whatever we do, I think it'll, I think whatever pl- whatever newsletter platform we go with will dovetail nicely with a broader content strategy. I'm sort of just saying this out loud for the first time, so this sounds a little messy. But (laughs) I am curious about um, additional educational opportunities for our clients or Mm. prospects and thinking about ways we can support that with whatever email provider we choose.
1: Mm -hmm. Because your target market is e-commerce merchants, correct?
0: Yeah, yeah. It's people yeah direct to consumer businesses basically helping people not work out of their own garage so fulfilling nice. their boxes taking their orders fulfilling their boxes shipping out their boxes
1: get them out of the garage into a real a real warehouse
0: a real warehouse so that you can focus on growing your business
1: <laughs> wow good copywriting what are some of the biggest assumptions that you came into this new role about uh, e-commerce
0: Some of the biggest assumptions that I've had were there are a lot more service providers and product solutions than I could have imagined. And that's really just because I don't have my own e-commerce business. So I don't know the nuts and bolts and all the different service providers that most D2C businesses work with. So that's really interesting seeing kind of how fragmented it actually, the industry actually is. Mm. That's interesting to me. One of my other assumptions with ShipBob in particular was that the biggest competitor, that the biggest competitor they have is Amazon. And, you know, certainly Amazon is a competitor. And at this point, Amazon is a competitor to every business. But <laughs> in
1: any in any category, in
0: any category, but for ShipBob in particular, ultimately our competition is our clients themselves, the people who are working out of their garage, picking, packing, and fulfilling their own shipments. That's really our competitor. And I, and I say that because somebody who would choose to sell their product only on Amazon versus starting their own like Shopify store, they're just very different kinds of they're very different kinds of businesses. Mm-hmm. So that that's been an, an interesting learning for me.
1: Can you tell me more about those two different types of businesses?
0: Yeah. So I think I think somebody who might choose to focus on Amazon as their merchant, they are they, they tend to be a commodity product those those do really well on Amazon. So the buyers or customers there are the people who are basically using Amazon as a search engine to be mm-hmm. like, "Oh, I really want, you know, where can I find a glass measuring cup?" You know, and they'll they'll, they'll search for it on Amazon and then whatever comes up that has high ratings, they'll just choose that. Something like a direct a true direct to consumer business that is building a brand, they're not going to be focused on Amazon. So you think about something like I want to think of a really good consumer brand that i that I really love right now. The one that I really love right now is Olipop. I love their sodas, and I think they are now selling on Amazon, but they didn't start there, right they they've been focused on figuring out their supply chain, creating a direct connection with their with their customers and really building out that relationship. so that would be kind of two differentiators, yeah.
1: And those who go with ShipBob are doing so because they want to be purposeful with their brand and they want to differentiate themselves. But but I assume yeah. you can also use ShipBob even if you are a kind of like a, a white label uh, product and you're just you just want to outsource it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, yeah. It, it, I mean, we definitely are a good solution for if you just want to outsource the packing and fulfillment. But we do, you know, we we do love working with the the data C brands that really want to grow as brands because we want to grow along with these brands. Like we want to help support you as you grow your business. Mm -hmm. And we want to do all the logistics so that you don't have to think about it. And I I know I kind of teased it in a joking way earlier, but I do mean it, right? We're like, Mm -hmm. if you, a D2C brand can completely outsource logistics where you don't have to think about it at all. You don't have to think about Mm -hmm. whether things are out of stock, whether things are in the West Coast warehouse versus the East Coast warehouse, then you can focus on growth, on marketing on launching new products, stuff like that.
1: Right. Yeah. Because because brand would have a real big impact on those types of businesses. So to focus on that instead of the nitty gritty logistics, I assume would free up a lot of time for those small teams.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely.
1: Are there any trends or kind of e-commerce or logistics, things that are going on that you're like most curious to dive into as you become more of a seasoned pro at this industry?
0: I, something I'm very curious, something that I think, Is interesting about the shipbob culture is there are a lot of people who have left shipbob or graduated. I'll say graduated from shipbob to start their own business, Mm. which I think is really cool. So I think there's definitely a strong like entrepreneurial spirit in the culture. So something I am and I'm so by extension something I'm curious about is how people really get started. With launching their own e commerce business. That's something that, something that I might explore along the way. Like maybe along the way, I'll figure out how to do that myself. And that will be the content for ShipBob. So I, I'm because I, I mean, I've never done it before, right? So I, I assume it's super hard. And I'm sure it is hard, but I assume that you need to, you know, order thousands of items. To make sure you have them in stock, so right. I, I'll be very curious to see what those barriers actually are, what they have been, you know, maybe five years ago or ten years ago, what they are now, and sort of what are the true challenges that new entrepreneurs or early stage entrepreneurs are facing now.
1: Mm, nice, you mentioned a point there, and that's going to bring me to my last question with you, but it connects the it connects to the last one about that idea of like creating content about things you're learning about. That makes like the best content usually because people who are even less knowledgeable about a certain topic, but are interested in it will follow along being like, oh, wow, Amanda's so, look, look at her. She's figuring out how to launch an e-commerce store, but you and yourself, you're just like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm just documenting it along the way. And uh, you and I have both been writing pretty consistently for the last over a year, and I know how it's affected me, but you've also talked a little bit about how this creating in public um, and networking purposefully has been very advantageous as you kind of transition from role to role. Wondering what you, if you have any kind of tips for people who... Want to test the waters with kind of being more purposeful with how they interact with people online and create content, and and how you've kind of felt it worked for you. I
0: love this question. I wish I figured out Twitter sooner in life. I've had a Twitter account for over ten years, and I, I use it mainly for journalism. So a lot of it was very news oriented, which kind of scared me off from using Twitter because I saw it as this doom and gloom world where I was just mm. like, oh, no one wants to hear my stupid thoughts, like. There are all these terrible things happening. So I just never truly, I would—I never truly used it, not with good purpose. And then I also wish that I published for myself a lot sooner than I have. It's something that I had done on and off as a teenager and, and in college, but then just kind of stopped doing when I got a real adult job. And I think the thing that I would say is that I wish I did this because it helped me to take Better, better control of my professional life and the way in which I think. I'd always been so scared of saying the wrong thing or having the wrong take and getting attacked for it, but like rightfully attacked, you know, like having, having a really bad take and having everyone hate it. Like I, I've, I've worried yeah. about that. And I still, I ain't sure I still do. But what I've also found is that a lot of what you a lot of what you put out there you also attract so like when i when i publish online you know it tends to be things that i know really really well so i'm sharing information that i feel confident in or i'm seeking to understand something better and the the response that i get from people tends to mirror or match what i'm putting out so mm. if i'm skeptical about something you know, I'll ask, but I I won't, I won't publish it. Like, gosh, I hate this, Matt, you know, I'll, I'll ask a question and people will respond and they'll say, oh, this is how this works. Or, you know, counterpoint to this, which I really appreciate. So I guess my overall takeaway here is when you're putting stuff out there, think about how that will project back onto yourself.
1: Yeah. Right that's awesome I felt the same way that it's weird how it works sometimes if you if you put out something and you're very inquisitive and and curious it'll attract all these other curious people if you put out something that's like here's my hundred percent truth point it'll bring back a whole bunch of people who are like I hundred percent disagree with your point <laughs> right that's yeah. very mirror. it's it's weird how Twitter works that way everything's kind of a mirror
0: yeah it's totally true and I found that there then there are ways that you can be very honest or vulnerable and you know, not get attacked for it. <laughs> In yeah. that I think if you are if you are really pure of heart and you're sharing something that is personal or that is like, oh, this is this is my unique experience, people won't really argue with that because if you're saying that something is your experience and as a result, this is how you see the world, people aren't going to say, oh, you're wrong. You didn't experience that. They mm-hmm. might say, oh, another point of view is to look at it this way but that's not argumentative. That's just someone sharing their point of view.
1: Right. Right. And then from that purposeful relationship building, I mean, that's how you and I found out about each other is like, I found your writing and I thought you were interesting. And then we got to have video calls every once in a while. And, but you and I live a completely opposite sides of the continent. Right. So yeah. it's interesting how you can be purposeful and find people who are doing similar things to you, or you find interesting and with, with, a little bit of effort and time can become like very, like either just work together and become colleagues or actually find ways to be in business together, like finding jobs and and co-founders and stuff like that. I think it's so amazing.
0: Absolutely. It really is about, you know, finding ways to make it easier to make friends and to find new jobs and so that you don't have to actually job hunt again. And yeah, I mean, to your point, like, I, well, I think something I'd say is you know, really, one positive thing out of the pandemic was with everybody being at home, it made it easier for everyone to network because because we weren't constrained by time zone or by mm-hmm. location, mm-hmm. right? Like you know, before using Twitter actively, I probably wouldn't have met you like no I, I yeah, and now we now we're best friends <laughs>
1: for those counting, we've uh, said best friends at least three times this conversation. so I think yeah, it's real.
0: It's real, yeah. <laughs>
1: In, in in conclusion, networking online is easier than I think people think it is, but remembering how to shake people's hand is going to be a learning curve. I don't remember how to shake people's hands, so it'll be interesting when I'm allowed to do that again.
0: <laughs> yeah. I love that.
1: <laughs> awesome. Agree. Thank you so much, Amanda. Where should people go reach out to you if they want to read your stuff and follow you along?
0: Yeah. So uh, I publish on Twitter pretty regularly at Amanda Nat. I also have a personal site, amandanat.com. And I have a weekly newsletter now it's called the menu and it is about some of the top things that I'm thinking about in a given week. And I always include a recipe.
1: Can't get away from the test kitchen lifestyle.
0: I can't No, but don't worry. There there's no backstory to these recipes. They're they're just recipes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Amanda. Thank you. If you enjoyed anything that you just heard, You're going to absolutely love what I'm about to tell you. If you go online to stewarthillhouse.com and hit the subscribe button, you'll be added to an email list where I share exclusive content related to this show. This is where I'm going to share my key takeaways from each episode, including my highlights, top of mind takeaways, and next steps that you can do to put this advice to action. I also share some real-life breakdowns of marketing campaigns that I'm seeing around and how I'm using it in my work. So head on over to StuartHillhouse.com and hit the subscribe button to get your first email. Looking forward to seeing you there.